0: In am finding the days. brewing that the focus remains the focal point of my team. Hello and welcome to the Rambling Runner Podcast. I'm your host, Matt Chittam, and this is the podcast for all the dedicated amateur runners out there who are working hard to get better while balancing running with the rest of their lives. And today's show is brought to you, as always, by my friends over at Previnex. You've heard me talk about Their products, specifically Joint Health Plus, I oftentimes talk about here on this show. And while you certainly know my feelings about it, you know, sometimes people view me as not necessarily an unbiased person here, right? Like, I'm reading an advertisement, while I love the product, you're like, all right, well, can I really trust it? I know it's an ad. Should I really believe it? Well, believe me, I'm not the only one that feels so strongly about Joint Health Plus. I'm going to read some verified buyer reviews about Prevenex and Joint Health Plus. So Brittany M, age 34, I've seen a difference in the short-term use and looking forward to using this long-term immediate benefit. All right. Christine F, let's see what Christine had to say about Joint Health Plus. I've been dealing with occasional joint pain from running. I started taking Joint Health Plus and was so pleased with the result. After two weeks of starting it, I noticed a difference. I would recommend this product to all of my running friends. If you don't want to believe me, I mean, you should. I'm I'm, I'm an honest guy. You can believe me. But if you don't, believe the people who are trying this. They trust this just as much as I do. Go to Previnex.com. That's P-R-E-V-I-N-E-X.com and pick up Joint Health Plus today and use code RUNNER15 to save 15% at checkout. Today's episode is with Dr. Margie Johnson. I could not wait to get Margie on the episode because not only is she a dedicated runner, she is extremely thoughtful and well-spoken. My goodness, again, this is not a new concept here on the Rambling Runner podcast, but quite often I talk to people who are incredibly smart and it's like immediately known to me like wow this person like blows me out of the water when it comes to intellect uh which you know uh you know isn't isn't that hard to do frankly but it's uh it really was like blew me away she's just so thoughtful and so introspective and she provided so much in this episode um there's just i don't even know where to begin in terms of putting intro to it you know she um she's a doctor in the philadelphia new york new jersey area who has treated COVID patients um, throughout this year. She has gotten COVID. Um, She actually had two bouts of it. Um, So I'll give you the exact verbiage uh, here in the episode. Um, She is also a Vietnamese, um, basically was born in Vietnam and uh, was basically airlifted as an infant to the United States and was adopted. So, was born and raised in the US. I'm um, not, she was raised in the US, but born in Vietnam. And this crazy story um, that she gets into as well. And we talk about so much more of that. We also talk plenty about running and overcoming difficulties and challenges and, and the joy and excitement around running and how she you know, has, you know, one of the ways that she feels a presence with God is through running. And, and we touch on so many things in this episode. And as 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 poorly as I'm talking in this intro, she brings the complete other end of the spectrum once we get started in this episode. So without further ado, here is Dr. Margie Johnson. Dr. Margie Johnson, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thanks for having me, Matt. It's good to be here in my closet. (laughs) That's like the best spot to record these things. I saw... uh, a picture i think it was like three or four months ago who knows at this point it could have been literally a year and a half ago but no it it was definitely at least the beginning of the social distancing because it was a picture of ira glass recording something um you know he's like you know the legend in in the radio and podcast space um recording something for like an intro or whatever and he's literally sitting on this small chair, he has his laptop in his lap. His knees are like at chest level, so he's seeing this weird, odd angle. And there's a microphone. He's kind of hand, like hand holding a microphone, and he's wedged into what looks like the suits section of his closet. So <laughs> it's like a suit teepee above him. You know, it's like coming down the back of him over, draped over the front, and he's talking into it. And you know, the basically it was like a, you know. A DIY version of soundproofing a studio, I guess.
1: Well, that's the best of the best. So I don't feel so bad other than I chose the dirty laundry area, so I'll have to up my game. Ooh. <laughs> oh
0: that's oh, a regrettable decision.
1: <laughs> TMI, sorry, bad way to start.
0: No, it's fine. I'm just sitting here like I swear be a short podcast. I'm gonna feel bad for Margie if she's still sitting in some in some dirty clothes, you know, an hour into this.
1: All good, all good.
0: Well, I was excited to have you on. I've been I was following you for a while. You're you're such an insightful person and I'm it's always fun to follow people in the running space who not only are, you know, so excited to achieve goals and and do new things and be adventurous and you know and all of that, but you're always somebody who struck me as someone who was, you know, quite insightful into not only where running fit into their lives, but in addition to that, um just what's going on in their lives and connecting it back to running. So with all of that being said, I you know, one thing that strikes me about you specifically is when I think of you, I think of your Instagram handle, you know, chasing an OTQ. We obviously just had that uh in February and it's something that for you has been a long-term goal. Before we get into that, when did running at that level or potentially at that level start to percolate inside of your thinking about what you could be as a runner?
1: Um, yeah, originally I thought that setting a goal to, to BQ, which was my original handle would be the very, very best that I could ever possibly do. And when I was running that last painful 2.6 miles of uh, the New Jersey, New Jersey marathon, I thought, I wonder, I mean, it could have been a little bit of low sodium. It could have been, you know, the tunnel vision and all the other stuff that happens in your last, your last few miles, but I thought I can do this and maybe I can do more. And um, I think it grew from there.
0: And when you think about long term goals like that and, you know, you, you kind of put it out in a public way, which is ironic because in so much of some of the other things, some of these other things that you've expressed, it seems like you hold a lot back in terms of, you know, your, you know, how running is going for you. Um, in terms of in the moment stuff, when you think about goals and achieving that sort of thing, is it sort of omnipresent and something you're constantly striving for, or is it more of like it's just kind of out there in the periphery, and then you are able to kind of lose sight of it a little bit and kind of go about your normal weeks and days and months of running?
1: I would say that I always have you know different kinds of visions or images that that I just passionately want to experience i remember the first pictures i saw of um some some runners that i i admire and i saw them hugging and crying and just the look of utter disbelief but self-celebration on their faces And i thought i'd like to know what that feels like and so that vision that desire to experience that that's always there you know each run that you either bonk or each run that is really great it's like okay how did that contribute to that but as far as um how it shapes each and every workout, definitely not I mean sometimes I'll throw back some sour patch kids, and that's definitely not gonna help me o t q but um it the vision's always there, but it does not shape my every workout it's definitely it has to be a long term goal or I think my um I think it would unravel my my mental strength for pursuing that goal all
0: right, so when did you start pick up running seriously?
1: I don't I- I don't know if I use the word seriously because, um, again, I think I, I I have a lot of doubts about myself as far as my strength, my mental strength, or I, at least I used to. And so usually when I um, shape something, it's, you know, I can be really passionate about a goal. Um, so but to answer your question, I was I guess I was always a runner. You know, I, I really loved, uh, you know, being one of the girls that could beat the boys when I was like eight or nine. Um I did run through college. I did run through high school, but I wasn't a distance runner. I was a jumper. I actually didn't like distance running. A four hundred would have been the longest that I could have ever imagined running four hundred meters. And I think in college there was a coach that, when I was struggling, had planted the seed of, "Hey, maybe you should consider running distance. You know, you're tiny. You, you know, you're gritty. Um, That might be the best direction." And uh, as an adult, when I was a, a surgical resident. It was just a really difficult time, and I wanted to do something that was totally for myself. So, you know, when you're tired and you're raising kids and you have no time, why not train for a marathon? So uh, (laughs) in 2010, I think it was 2010 or 2012, I'm forgetting right now, but that's when I decided to train for my first marathon. And that's when I realized that I really enjoy pursuing kind of the competitive side of it, not against other people, but with myself. So I guess that's when I got... um, more disciplined and more, um, regular about my, about my training. Um, and so in that sense, serious.
0: Yeah. So I want to know about the, the, the jumping. What what did you do for that?
1: (laughs) Um, I honestly can't remember. I know that that year, you know, I'm only like five, I like to say five, one, if I really stretch. Um, but I think I'm about five, one and my best friends on my team, you know, not to make excuses, but they're literally like, six foot and five ten, And it was a year that when we were messing around with hurdles, that was my original, um, my original event. Uh, one of the coaches was just like, come on over here, Margie, try this out. And boom, we banged out some pretty good jumps for never having trained. Um, and so that was the year we had a pretty, pretty big high school, um, Deep in talent, um, wonderful, loving coaches. There are probably like 300 to 400 of us on the team. So, when I mean big, that's what I'm talking about. So, the depth ra- or the talent ran deep, and um, three of us were trying super hard for states. And I think we all PR'd by literally like a foot because we were just trying so hard. I could never make my mark. I was always jumping from behind the board. So, I don't know. I might have maxed out at like 18.6, but long and triple. Um, oh, Margie,
0: 186? Holy cow, that's huge.
1: <laughs> thanks. The people who jumped ahead of me jumped way further, though. So, um, yeah, I still remember who they were, and I have nothing but admiration for those people. But, yeah, I'll never forget those names. It was the year that I hoped to go to states, and I got bumped out by by better athletes. So, Yep, even short people can jump. So um, hopefully no one's deterred by being tiny. Um, But those were my original loves. And those that coach, coach Joe Sanford, helped me to believe that I could even as a kind of average Joe runner on a huge track team that I could be special um, by being the very best I could be. And sometimes, you know, like I like to say, even a blind squirrel finds a nut now and then. So I got lucky one day. And it felt really great. And in college, they just switched me over to distance. And that was a whole new game.
0: And what, and what a drastic change it is, right? It's not like, <laughs>
1: it was you know, terrible. It's,
0: it's, it's, I mean, that's not something that you'd usually hear. Um, so, you know, you 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 presented it as, yeah, we had this conversation and then I switched. Like, was it really that simple? I mean, it does, it, it, I mean, you must have been a very trusting person if it literally took like a three sentence conversation.
1: <laughs> I didn't know anything about running. You know, I as far as I was concerned, I was a track person. And running was still my punishment at that point. It was, you know, late 80s. So um, it was no pain, no gain era still. And anyway, in college, the requirement to be part of the track team, whether you were walk on or whether you were recruited, um, was to be part of the cross country team. I'm like, I don't even really know what cross country was. Those were the, the girls who could just run forever. They'd leave the track, they'd come back like hours later. I'm like, what were you even doing? So I got thrown in with the cross country team. Um, and Wow, they were so tightly knit and I was a little on the periphery so that was hard just because I had science labs and things like that. But yeah, it really was a brief conversation. It was if you want to be part of our team, um then here's your jersey and here are the little rundaroos or whatever they wore and,
0: you know, get dressed. <laughs> oh my gosh. So where did you go?
1: Um I went to Allegheny. It's a Division 3. Um, that was the year that um, I guess the team did really well. I contributed zero to that other than being <laughs> back of the Packer, but I learned a lot. I learned um, I learned what it was like to be part of a cross-country team, and that mattered.
0: And as someone who ultimately became a doctor, and obviously you were, you know, at that point undergrad, um, most people are going through some sort of science regimen uh, for their studies. Being a student athlete can be extremely tough for a lot of folks to say nothing of people who have labs because you know whether you're an engineer or basically any version of stem or science or what have you you know those labs can take a toll on on student athletes because it's just more time that that you have to be in class and it's not something that you can work around from a practice standpoint right you can't you can't make up labs that gets very difficult what was it like for you juggling um these aspects of your life knowing full well that um as as much as you love sport, that especially for a division 3 athlete, it wasn't as if you were going to ultimately be make that your profession.
1: Oh, I haven't thought about this in a little while, but um uh, in all honesty, it was probably more misery than anything. Um I, you know, I, I think at some point I probably should have quit the team, but it just wasn't in me to quit. And, you know, it was injury after injury. And uh, most of the time it was the coach, the stopwatch, and me. And those are not fun, Um, especially if you're feeling bad about yourself. You know that you're not one of the best runners on the team, you're always running against the clock. Um, Yeah, I, you know, I would go right from the lab. I'd have my clothes on already. I'd smell like whatever was in the lab. I'd get right out onto the field. It was wet. We had three practices a day, even for division three. I'm sure that's, you know, the norm for people who are division two and division one. But um, I didn't enjoy any of my practices. I missed jumping very much. I always felt kind of like the imposter because I was, uh, you know, I was a more of a field person. So it shaped me. It shaped me for a while. Um, I struggled very much with uh, feeling like I was overweight, even though I wasn't. Um, We did have at that time you could get away with public weigh in. So the whole story recently with, um, I don't know why I'm drawing a blank on her name, but all of those stories definitely, um, uh, resonated with me. I wouldn't say that it went as far as on, on our team, but, um, it, I did, I did walk away from running for, for quite a while. And I, I think it left with me a taste that, that I wasn't a runner, that I wasn't an athlete and that it was only for people who were good at running. So, um, yeah, I didn't enjoy the college years of running.
0: How you ended that is interesting. So basically running is for people who are good at running. With that being, you know, your inner monologue, or maybe at that point just your subconscious belief, were you of this like kind of like this maybe not necessarily a growth mindset approach to either running or sports in general or maybe other areas of your life? Or did you just kind of view it as like you're either good at something or you're not? Or you know, how did you just approach Growth and professional or athletic development in that time, um, either consciously or subconsciously.
1: Oh, that's tough. Um, I I think, unfortunately, I boxed out running just because it really was. You know, there's a lot that um, that a coach can do to shape a team and kind of the uh, the culture of the team. Um, so. I, I don't I don't really I don't know how to answer that question other than, you know, it didn't affect how I saw myself as a person. I had I've always had been very fortunate, blessed to have loving friends, people who speak into the space when the space gets too small or when you get too inside your head, or what I like to say belly gazing. And so I don't think uh, I translated what I was concluding, at least at the time about myself in track um, to all the facets of my life. It was definitely hard. Um, I wanted to feel good about myself physically cause that has always been important to me, but I guess deep down because I always had good coaches or good teachers in karate or whatever that, um, that I still had capabilities, but maybe, maybe it just wasn't going to be cross country. So I did just categorize it or box it off neatly and set it aside for a while. Um, but later on it was, it was discovering, we didn't really, I wasn't, I don't think Instagram was, necessarily a thing, but I discovered um, Dorothy Beal. And to me, it seemed like, hey, she's like me. We're both in our 20s. We both have young children. And she ran a marathon. And it was really seeing her and how she just applied herself and worked hard. I'm like, yeah, that's that's how I see a lot of athletics. Work hard, do the best that you can. And that's achievement.
0: Oh, that's interesting. All right. So Dorothy Beal from I Run This Body. Um, she has just a wide a wide-ranging you know media presence um, and, and is known for um, you know I guess the yes the, the title says it all right <laughs> the whole I run this body movement um, and she's she's been an advocate for so many people an advocate for them but I think um, almost like a lighthouse for a lot of people that, that kind of brings them into running you know seeing the light that she's able that she emanates and just like you kind of brings them in and for you it certainly was a return to running um, it's interesting that running that not only did you come back after a sour experience, but that you came back during such a, a hectic time of your life, right? I <laughs> mean, in medical school, even people who don't go to it is known for how hard it can be. Um, I had a very similar conversation with Stephanie Flippin over a year ago uh, where you know she had the exact same situation. You know, she was going to medical school and that's when she picks up running. What about that experience created this need inside of you to have some sort of balancing of the scales where you were doing something, you know, out maybe it's, you know, basically not in the lab or in a hospital or studying. So you're doing something, you know, in a new, in a new place and using your body instead of your mind, um, to kind of balance out what you're potentially doing on the other side.
1: I think, uh, at some point, um, you just get so beaten down or so tired. You're like, there's gotta be something better. Or you see people around you, everybody's starting to look just a little bit more unhealthy. You see your, your friends, um, age, you see people put on a lot of unhealthy weight and you think I need to turn this around. And, Uh, that's,
0: I can relate to that completely. I mean, I know, I know exactly what you mean. And sometimes the person I see is in the mirror and I feel that way. So that's not, I I think, I think that's not necessarily a medicine related thought process. I think that's, you know, pretty generalized across, you know, most professions are just growing older.
1: Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't, I don't know that might've been, you know, the right catalyst at the right time. It could have been, you know, our children were all young at the time. A whole host of factors. It was the perfect storm, but you know, I had welcomed that storm anytime again because um, I found joy in that. So,
0: yeah, and it's so funny because I sit here like, all right, if I was going through that experience, right, first of all, like I didn't, so I, <laughs> it's only so much I know, but I do know people who have. So, I'm trying to think, all right, if I'm going through this experience and it's, it's draining, right, just mentally, physically, and emotionally, it's draining. What was how much of the allure was to just be like, all right, when I'm not doing medical school type stuff, or even now where you have a very demanding job and you have kids, you have this situation where you're like, all right, when I have downtime, how do I want to spend it? Doesn't this couch look nice <laughs> type feeling, right? Like, <laughs> why do I want to go put on running shoes and go outside? Like, this couch is wonderful. Oh, there's a TV over there. Oh, that's nice too. Um when you hit that fork in the road, what gets you out the door versus puts you horizontal?
1: <laughs> well, it doesn't always work. So sometimes I do choose the horizontal, but, um, I think oftentimes it's two things. One, you know, I was raised with faith-based background, So being a good steward of your body, um, was always instilled as, in to me as being something that's important. And so it's a way to honor back the gift that you've been given. Um, so that's part of it, but also, Uh, who was it? I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing his name correctly, but, um, is it Eric Lydell or Eric Lydell who says that when he runs, he feels, um, you know, God's enjoyment of him. I I'm sure I'm getting the quote wrong, but you know, the first time I heard that I'm like, yes, that's it. It's, it's when everything else gets stripped away and you're not thinking about yourself as, mom or as surgical resident or as daughter or anything else you're out there you're using the the life that you've been given the body that you've been given whether it works well or not and it's just you and God and that's the word delight uh, i feel god's delight in me most when i run so it's prayerful it's worshipful and it just it just feels good
0: now have you always have you has god been a part of your life since you were little, like, is that something that you grew up with or is this something that you came to later?
1: Yeah, definitely. And, um, yeah, I think I, since I'm adopted, um, I've always had a sense of just being a recipient of grace. Like I could have just been yet another one of the orphans who was kind of lost in the whole, in the midst of the Vietnam war and, you know, or one of the boat people lost or whatever. And I get this family that spoke openly about, wanting a child, wanting a third child. They already had two, um, that were their naturally born children. And they also delighted in wanting to have a third child that wasn't blonde and blue eyed, which is my whole family. Um, and so they saw my uniqueness as, um, gifts from God. And so, yeah, it was never not a part of my life. I can't remember ever not having, um, someone tell me that, you know, that God loves you or, or whatever. So, it, it's become, um, it's changed voices in various ways as I've gotten older or experienced different things or lived in different places, but never not been a part of my life.
0: So were you born in Vietnam or were you born in America?
1: Yeah, I was. Um, and I often forget that when people ask me, I hesitate because I'm like, I was born in Erie. Wait, no, I wasn't. Um, no, I was born in Vung Tau, Vietnam. Um, I arrived in the U.S. on one of the last masks with Vax Out. You probably have heard of the um of the airlift babies that's us and there's only about 2500 of us but um yeah I'm one of again I feel like all the time I'm just happen to be like the adult who's standing by like here I am and god just poured out a bunch of grace on me and you get a uh, you know a loving family and opportunity and oh and guess what you're one of the few people that gets to reunite with your birth family too how about that so I just feel like I have so much that I have to give back because I've been given so much
0: I got to be honest with you, and it pains me to say it. I I'm not aware. I'm literally on Wikipedia looking up Operation Baby Lift as we're talking because I I'm like I shoot my own naivete on some of this stuff. Um, I was not aware that this was this was a thing. So for those people who are listening now, maybe they're on the run. Could you just give a brief synopsis of what that is and why this was such um, you know a special thing for you and you know the couple thousand other other babies who were involved in this.
1: Um. I won't claim to be the best historian, but I know there's been a lot of controversy. There are both positives and negatives as, as with anything, I think at the best that it was, the intent was for um, children who were either orphaned or thought to be orphaned um, that desperately needed life. And so you'll see pictures, if you, you know, Google through it, you'll see pictures of Vietnamese families literally like tossing their children onto buses and onto planes in the hopes of getting them somewhere safe. Um, and there was this small window where I think it was President Ford approved the evacuation of orphans. Um, obviously, there were some political machines that were in the way. So some people thought they were taking advantage of Vietnamese people and stealing babies. But regardless of all the political framework that may or may not um, have influenced it and in here and what I can say is that I benefited from it. And so, yeah, There, I think there are about 2,500 of, of, of us that were, um, many of us were what we would say, you know, valid adoptions that preceded all those flights. Some have questionable adoptions as far as um, uh, maybe not having exactly the right paperwork or people question whether um, an impoverished Vietnamese culture was taken advantage of and, you know, wealthy Americans reaching in and taking Vietnamese babies. I don't know. I haven't cared to get too much into that. But that's essentially what happened. There were there was a small grouping of orphans that needed homes, needed life. And we were scattered largely to um, Western countries.
0: Yeah, it's interesting, you know, so so many times, as you mentioned, there's good and bad here. And it's interesting that you go you go back to this and you see, you know, God's you see you you hearken back to this and you connect it to God's grace, like, hey, this is for me, this is evidence of that. And it's one of those things where it's so interesting because I feel like, you know, there's so there's people who would take the opposite approach, right? They'd be like, Oh, I wasn't able to stay with my birth family. This happened, this happened. You know, what's it all for? Life is chaos, so on and so forth, right? Like, you, but you took it in a very different way. And not only that, but have it used that, um, that perspective in a, you know, something that stayed with you for a long period of time. And when you think back to not only how you approach your faith in regards to its early formation in you, you know, especially regarding this story. As you progress through life and, you know, you've, you've kept your faith, how has, how you've connected to it evolved And in, in another way, how is it, you know, um, how has your feelings on faith evolved in relation to, um, you know, say like your science community, because sometimes those two can be at odds.
1: I think ultimately I, you know, it, oh gosh, I'm going to sound like I'm like raising a Bible here, but, you know, I do think that it's important to think um very highly or more highly of another person so when you encounter someone else who might have a different narrative or a different story i think my first impulse is to say to myself you know like okay they're probably right i really want to hear this for what it is so if someone came up to me and said you know it was really lousy that i was taken from my vietnamese family i hate it here i want to go back that's a really important story to validate it doesn't make mine invalid but i think that my faith tells me there has to be humility. And if I, you know, even if my story is completely different from that person's, if I can't somehow express to that person, um, in this moment or the moment that I'm given that that person's cherished, that person's loved, or that I can't express to them some for, you know, some kind of love from me to that person, then I don't know. I don't know what my faith would look like without engaging it that way.
0: Right, I can I can totally see that, and I can see how, especially considering the profession you've chosen, that having this social element and community element um, undergirding your faith, and then kind of spreading it out from there, would not only be you know a as uh, an element within. Your spiritual practices generally, but also specifically in what you're doing now in terms of helping other people, um, in so many ways. And I think, you know, we will talk about what's, what's been going on in 2020 a little later, but that, that makes a lot of sense. And I think it's, it's inspiring to me to see you talk about this openly, not only here on the show, but also in things that you've written while I'm not re- a man of faith. I, I. Love seeing people who are in this genuine way that is, uh, it really is all inspiring. So, I think, first of all, thank you for sharing that. Because I know for some people, it can be, you know, while they may feel strongly about their faith, talking about it openly and publicly can be something that's not for everybody.
1: Yeah, I appreciate you saying that. I think, especially as a physician, you want to make sure that people always feel that you're approachable and that you are willing to welcome them. Like truly welcome them, no matter their background. And so, if I ever have hesitation to share with someone, um, you know, uh, putting my faith to words, which I'd rather it be put to some kind of action or some kind of um, expression of love, then it would only be because they asked. um, But otherwise. Yeah, you know, faith comes in so many forms, whether it's because you really believe that, you know, your your running is what saved your life or, you know, that your parents or, you know, I I don't know that I think that that there's anyone who doesn't have faith. It just depends on what they um, put their faith in. But, um, yeah, always happy to talk about it, but more comfortable talking about it when it's like, what has what has God done or what has love or my parents or whatever done for me? That's that's usually what I prefer to talk about.
0: Yeah, I can imagine. All right. So this winter, you know, for for anyone who follows running, we all know what happened in February. We had the Olympic trials. Like, what a wonderful event. It was basically the the last big running (laughs) event of 2020, uh, how it turned out. Um, And that's something that has been on a lot of people's radar. certainly was on your radar as well. So heading into 2019, looking forward to 2020, where were you in terms of – how close you thought you could potentially get to an OTQ or what was your fitness? Like, how did you kind of map out the year ahead? If you could go back, you know, a year and a half from now, a year and a half from now back to the beginning of 2019, how did you view, you know, the preceding 13 months?
1: Year and a half. That was like last week, right? <laughs>
0: <laughs> um, the truth?
1: um I, there was just some point at which, um, I'm like, man, this is an Olympic trials year. And it was just a fire, um, in my belly. And, um, I had a coach before, uh, still beloved friend of mine, um, deep respect. Um, but I knew that there were some things that I, that I wanted to add to my, my arsenal, um, of whatever, my arsenal of things that would help me to get as close as possible. Um, and so at that time I was working with a new coach and loved her, um, and it's Sally, Sally McRae. And, uh, you know, I when I told her my dream, of course, as a good coach, she's not going to say, oh, my gosh, that's ridiculous. Um, she's like, what was your last time? I'm like, it was like 320, 330. Um, she's like, okay, okay. You know, and if you can imagine how she'd be talking, all smiles, all yellow, all sunshine. It's like, okay, well, then we got a lot of work to do Margie. <laughs> like, okay. Um, so as far as the reality of it, you know, who can say it's an unknowable thing, but, um, I don't think I would have actually reached it. Um, uh, that doesn't mean that I wasn't going to try my very best to do it. So the reality was I was at my very best fitness heading into CIM. Um, I, I, I had a belief that I would come pretty darn close and that, you know, if a miracle happened and all the elements were right, that it was looking pretty good to be close enough and that would have been satisfying. So, um, yeah, I had a lot of hope, a lot of things on the line and tell it started to just kind of fade. And I, um, yeah, I didn't know what that was at first. I, for a while there, as I was, you know, exchanging messages, calls with Sally. It was tough to figure out. First, I thought it was just working with a new coach and maybe trying to understand new body cues. Um, I had kind of felt that one of my strengths was knowing my body cues and being able to understand to really have a good gauge of where my fitness was. Um, but things were slipping away. It was almost like I was on, you know, a treadmill running backwards or something. And I, we just, we couldn't figure it out. And it was frustrating for both of us because we saw my fitness, you know, climb exponentially, hitting all the, the workouts. Um, and it didn't co- coincide with the change in weather. So, um, yeah, it was, a it was, a, I don't know. It was a season of question and, and I don't know if it was quite disappointing me yet. Cause I didn't, hadn't seen myself as failing to reach it at the time yet. Um, but I was, oh, I was confused.
0: Right. So you were up until that point though. You, as you mentioned, like you were really excited with how your training was going. Like, did you, what, at what point where did you feel like you were your fittest and what did some of those workouts or look like?
1: Gosh, I honestly, I feel like I've lived three lives since then. I can't, I, I honestly can't recall. Um, I know we, you know, we saw my VO two max go, go through the roof. Um, we saw that I was nailing certain numbers. My, you know, my, my time trials were, I was hitting my marks. Um, but it was just a, it was a short period. I want to say that it was just maybe a month or two. We you know, we, we did, I already had a base going in when I was working with Sally. So then it was just refining things and building strength. Um, strength was not my forte. Um, and I knew that she could offer that to me as a, especially as an ultra trail runner. And so we buckled down, she buffed me up. Um, I was really proud of how my body was changing. So, you know, in retrospect, though, I think I had one month where I was just flying. I'm like, man, I I might actually get this.
0: So every year, CIM is the first Sunday in December, first Saturday or Sunday in November, uh, or December, I should say. Um, so heading into that month, you mentioned that things just didn't feel right. Like all of a sudden, you're doing great, and then all of a sudden, you weren't doing great, and it was a mystery to you guys as the year progressed and as you looked more into it, you know, were you able to kind of come to some sort of conclusions as to what was going on?
1: Yeah. I mean, fast forward quite a bit, you know, um, it, it, I started feeling, you know, I really have zero health problems, like nothing. And, uh, I don't, I don't struggle with any kind of niggles or, or injuries or anything. So I started feeling chest pain and I started feeling it in the way that doctors know you shouldn't feel it. Like I'd have it um, going up hills, I'd have exertional pain. I was starting to get shortness of breath that didn't quite make sense. I started getting night sweats, my heart rate oh that was it. my heart rate was the first thing. I went from you know high forties, low fifties to over hundreds, and I was exhausted. Um, I'm like, what is this? I must be getting sick so of course, you know we did all the blood work, did all the all the right things, and was just coming up empty like what is going on? I wasn't depressed. It wasn't anything like that. It was just this mystery ailment where my fitness was just plummeting and, um, the heart rate was quite concerning. And I have, uh, physician mentors that were like, something's going on with you. So early on, I, you know, heading into CIM, we knew that I was struggling. Sally's just like, do the best that you can. Um, and at CM, I knew, I knew something was wrong. I don't usually go to the restroom and I, in, during a race and I went like 16 times um there's all sorts of crazy stuff goofy stories that happened including a, a porta potty falling over on me at the race um, but um thanks to the people who helped pick me up it was it was embarrassing and i appreciate your grace about that but anyway yeah cim was a disaster um, and i came out of there just feeling like what happened so immediately uh, my mentors hooked me up with you know my favorite cardiologist in the area and they're like you're in heart failure and we don't know why i'm like what I'm like I've never had any history of any heart anything, um, and it was it was difficult because they don't usually work with athletes that you know. Not to say that I'm a high level athlete, but at the time, of course, my fitness had been as 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 good as it could be. And so, when we do uh, cardiovascular fitness tests on on um, kind of the the average patient, you know, we do something called the Bruce protocol, and you put someone through kind of the ringer of the treadmill. Well, it was it was crazy because I was saying how sick I was. And I started sounding like I was this like athlete who was bellyaching about, oh, I just can't run as fast. Um, and they they tried to repeat the Bruce protocol three times on me. And each time I'm like, no, really, really, this is a lot worse than what it should be. And thankfully, you know, my cardiologist believed me and he knew there was something going on and the heart rate itself was worrisome to him. But all we can c- conclude at the time was that I'd been through heart failure. It seemed like it was a virus and that I was probably recovering and that i was fortunate because some people don't recover at all and then fast forward of course that was you know one of the first instances of of covid
0: wow i mean that's that's quite a it's quite a thing to experience for you do you looking back do you think you got it from your practice or can you pinpoint at all where you think you might have um acquired the virus
1: yeah um i would say that i have uh to protect, you know, my friends and and everything. I would say that I, it's not, probably not from the practice, you know, who can really know. But at the time I did have friends that were traveling internationally to select sites where we, where we identified the virus. And I had exposure through that. And it, and, we also have confirmation or at least suspicion that that was it because those people also came down with that mysterious heart rate starting to creep up, um, you know, fitness dropping off dramatically, wondering why we were short of breath, all that, you know, kind of the early symptoms that people talked about. So yeah, probably, unfortunately, through some running friends.
0: (laughs) So how long did the symptoms linger in you?
1: So round one, so unfortunately I've had it twice, um, which, which, whether we want to call it a variant or whether we want to call it a reactivation, you know, we don't need to get into the controversy of it, but the first time around we saw the fitness and we saw, you know, the, the heart health plummet and then have kind of a recovery. And that seemed to be, let's see, November, December, January, it seemed to be about three months you know, it took a good month to try to figure stuff out, and of course, we didn't call it COVID until later. Um, and I felt like I had recovered enough that I could at least walk up my stairs. You know, I went from over 100 mile miles a week for my for my running to couldn't even walk up my stairs. Um, I couldn't I, I couldn't walk a block or walk even to the end of my short driveway just to get the mail without being short of breath. Of course, my kids and my my husband were worried like, you're going to have a heart attack. You got to sit on the couch all the time. I'm like, I have to move a little bit. Um, and I recovered enough that I could at least walk and talk at the same time. And that was a victory, unfortunately or fortunately. Um, but round two, around March, April, when we were taking care of a lot of patients, that's when I really got waylaid and probably when a lot of people started reaching out to me on Instagram because I just disappeared and you know, there's so much going on and, you know, in our world at the time in our country with people's fears and how things got politicized and some other work that I desperately wanted to do to help out um, and didn't want people to be, I, I didn't know if I could handle emotionally people talking about how it wasn't a real virus or it wasn't a real problem or that it was being exaggerated. So when I got sick the second time, it was, it was really bad. And, I'll, I'll say with love and admiration, not to point at myself, but my mentor actually brought a breathing machine to our house um, in case I had to die at home so that I wouldn't be stuck away from my kids. So that was, that was the worst of my experience. And I don't know, I I don't know how to say anything except I was surrounded by people who loved me, which is more than a lot of people, a lot of my patients could have said. So I wouldn't want to repeat the experience again, but I, you know, in the, in the bottom in the darkness, I still have gratitude for the people that were there with me.
0: And before we got on the call, we talked about how you don't want to necessarily get into your experiences treating people because it was so widespread and you're up in the Northeast the Philadelphia, New York city area. Um, and so widespread, you worked with a lot of people. It's not, it's not your job to tell their stories. It's not your place necessarily, but you made it clear that not only that, but that it also that by telling that those heartbreaking and tragic stories that you saw, that it would become potentially opening up old wounds. So I don't want to get into that necessarily. I want to focus on you, but I just want to bring it up in case people are wondering if you experienced that as a doctor and that you did mention it to me beforehand and we did talk about it. Um, So I just want to bring that up to the listeners uh, in case that they were wondering if you played a part in helping individuals. Um, That second time, you, what you just said it has me slackjawed. Uh, you know, in terms of the breathing machine story and, and 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 how serious it got for you. When you think back now, like you you obviously are aware that so many people who got COVID basically so many experienced nothing, or basically nothing in right. terms of symptoms. Right. And here you are at the peak of your powers as an athlete, and you had the exact. <laughs> not the exact opposite reaction because you're still here talking to us, but you had a very dissimilar reaction to the vast majority of people. When you have that and you even think about it now and you reflect on it, what's that like for you putting that into words or just grappling with that fact where like so many people have such different responses to this. And here you are having this terrible response where someone else for who knows what reason has no response.
1: Yeah. Um, you know, I didn't have good words for it. it. It did leave me kind of in a space of, I don't know how to explain this and I'm okay with just having to leave it there. Um, it wasn't until, you know, our beloved Tommy Rives went through what he went through because I'm like, how, you know, even my cardiologists and my doctor friends are like, how does someone who's so fit, they're like, maybe it's just a blessing that you were so fit because when you were knocked down, at least you had a place to be knocked down from. I'm like, I, I guess that's okay. But when, you know, even though, Tommy didn't, ha- um, you know, end up having COVID, it still was just a reminder that, you know, there's so much that we don't know. And there were so many factors as far as, you know, what really does make for a a chronic condition that makes you more vulnerable to COVID. It gave me even more humility than I thought I could possibly have about who, you know, what can, what do we need to do to protect people? And so early on, the team that I worked with, uh, the volunteers or my, my team that volunteered in New York City, um, Couple of them are just masterminds as far as public health, and they were able to utilize even my runner data, my Garmin data of all things, um, to to start to explore some of those questions early on. As far as hey, maybe it's not just people with diabetes, maybe it's not just people who have asthma that's out of control. Why would a marathoner who's hoping to come close to an OTQ how how does she get knocked down? Is it ethnic? So it was a good place to be as far as feeling like you know it helped to raise important questions. Um, I'd say from a personal perspective, it just plain old sucked. Like, why am I sick? you know, what in the world? And, um, it gave me worry for, am I going to get better? Um, that was definitely a question. Will I ever run again? Will I ever walk to the end of the driveway or will I always, even if I can run, will I always have to be concerned that what if, you know, my heart is permanently damaged? Will I have a heart attack out on the street? That's so do I stop running? Cause I'm a mother so that my kids don't have to be worried. Huge questions for me at the time
0: so can you walk me through the past three or four months um from the second from you know after you got it the second time uh or reactivated or the 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 word the terms of art that you used um earlier once it hit you the second time and far worse from the nadir of that experience what has it been like getting back up to where you are now and exactly where are you now
1: um at the time, I guess, I felt well supported by um the other physicians on the team because it was globally re- represented. So there was great communication, which I feel early on the u s. maybe wasn't as good at. And so, you know, I was able to pool information, put together minds from, you know, from all areas of our of our globe. And that helped immensely as far as um understanding, what needed to be done, we were some of the first to start talking about proning people, which means instead of putting people on ventilators early, we were flipping people over on their bellies. And it was amazing. I, you know, uh, as far as getting myself better quickly and having the support, they're like, you're just going to have to prone yourself. You know, if you want to stay home and not have us drag, you know, drag you kicking and screaming to the hospital, then prone yourself. And I remember it was just like your body, my body gravitated that way. And it was like a week of feeling like, you know, please, God, don't, don't, don't leave my kids without a mother. And I guess that's a little bit selfish, but I was so worried for them that I was doing everything possible to learn to receive help, uh, you know, to pray that I would heal. And you know, I set aside the idea of running, obviously, but over the three months, you know, when I started to, you know, the, the chills started going away, the full body aches started going away. I could see that I was recovering. I knew that many people went into a chronic inflammatory state. Many people stayed sick and had uh, waxing and waning symptoms for months. I thought, well, maybe that's just where I'm at. Maybe I won't ever get better. And I accepted that and tried to figure out what my life would look like from there forward. But each day I would see little things that told me I'm, I'm making progress. I'm making progress. And I'll tell you when I was out running and, you know, completed my first mile, there were tears probably as big as when, you know, if I had OTQ'd and the time when I got back to five miles, again, there were just tears by myself giving thanks for, thank you for letting me get even this far. And my goal over the last three months, um, was just, you know, please, I just want to enjoy a long run again. I just want to be able to go out for maybe, maybe 10 miles to just, you know, forget spaces, be back in that space where I feel like God is delighting in me. And I got there, you know, I, I, grandmas is really one of my favorite marathons. And when they went virtual, I'm like, I so want to do that for myself. And I wasn't really going to tell anyone that, you know, people thought I was crazy. They're like, you can't go running out, you know, out in open road, you're going to die. You're going to be face down in a ditch. But I'm like, I'm not trying to be irresponsible, but I really, I also need to live my life responsibly, but pursue the things that I feel that are important. And so finishing grandma's in the same time, basically that I finished CIM, it, it was humble and not really a great time for me, but it was such a delicious victory. And I, sobbed on open roads and uh, just reliving it. Um, That might be the closest I get to experiencing what it's like to have an OTQ victory, but um, I'll forever, I'll forever remember it. And I was all by myself.
0: (laughs) Well, yeah, what, I mean, what a remarkably emotional story. And I can just, I can imagine it being so for so many reasons, Um, you know, and here we are, right. We're on the cusp of another virtual another famous virtual marathon about to kick off uh (laughs) you know you you you, you've you've posted about this as well uh the boston marathon are you going to do anything for virtual boston or where where are you at now from a running perspective
1: yeah i you know i finally regained a base without feeling like i'm you know coughing up a lung or whatever so i feel that's a victory but um as far as You know, the drive that I had for grandma's was it was it was going to be an emotional victory just to complete the training. And so I feel like the things that I needed to do to satisfy myself as a runner, like I'm good for now. Um, But for Boston, I'm like, oh, man, I can't miss this historic race and. Uh, so I'm going to give it my best shot. Uh, I told myself if it takes me 10 hours, it takes me 10 hours. If it takes me 15, as long as it's less than 24 hours, then I'll do it. But I'm going to do it safely. Um, if it's a super hot, humid day, then, you know, I, it's, it's not, it's to me at this point, it's not worth any running will never be worth that kind of risk to me. So I will run it. I don't know what day I'm going to string it out as long as possible though.
0: You've worked through hard things some very very hard things especially recently for people who are currently fighting through hard things whether they be you know physical mental emotional or a cocktail uh of those what would you how would you help them or advise them in terms of um what you've gleaned in yourself from working through these hard things and coming out the other side
1: i guess i'll just reflect back the gifts that were given to me during these times you know i there is a story that I think I want to share only because I have checked in with people. And, you know, I, I told you that I was a little bit, well, I was a lot worried, you know, with not being clear about how close can you tread with sharing someone's story where it becomes exploitation and how much of that is still, you know, my story and that it's important to share or what are my motivations for sharing. But I think it overlaps with many things that we're doing and or experiencing here in the U S and one of those, um, Kind of a long answer to what you just asked me, but I think it's it's really um, precious to me when people show me that they see me, um, show me that they have heard me, and you know it could be when I'm at my very ugliest. I think that it, it's most necessary when I'm feeling like I made the worst choice possible, or I'm you know a lousy mother or a lousy wife, or you know I, whatever I snapped at the kids or something. Um, and it's in those moments when someone's like, you know what, I do see you though. I see you for who you are and you're still loved. And gosh, that's been taught to me over and over, um, in the loving acts that people have expressed to me. But one of the things that I wanted to share with you that I feel is important is when, when I was in New York, um, it was one of the worst days when it just felt like there was a never ending stream of ambulances. And I thought, you know, Lord, how am I going to do this, um, I just felt like, you know, I'm not usually an emotional, emotional person. I'm typically giggly or even stoical. But I just felt like I was going to cry and never stop because we were all just fried, emotionally fried. And it just seemed like death after death after death. And, you know, the ugly deaths that everybody's read about by now of loneliness and isolation. But the part that gutted me, but still not only helped me to see what needed to be done and what needs to continue to be done was that, I was standing kind of near the emergency bay and with a doctor who way outranked me, very talented. And I just felt like, you know, I would be learning something as he was showing me around the ER. This, this ER director actually um, had been on a ventilator, almost died. I'm like, Hey, we're like twinning, but we were walking around and he was showing me, you know, people that he was proud of his nursing staff, all of his staff that helped to bring him back um, from that gray zone of life. And while we were talking, um, uh, a, going to try to get through this. A woman came up, a black woman, and she was carrying her son. It was, you know, not a little little boy, um, like 11 12, and he, you know, it looks like walks like smells like we we don't we didn't test. We didn't need to test. We would see hundreds of cases a day, so he had covid. And the first thought in my mind was how does she not know that this isn't a children's hospital? And and I, it it struck me the difference, you know, if you and I Matt, were talking, you know, most of our friends would have the privilege of knowing that, hey, a children's hospital is probably where you should bring your kids. It's it's just part of what we've been taught or what we see or, you know, that our friends have done. She didn't even think about that. All she thought was, I have to go to the nearest hospital possible where I can actually physically carry my child because I can't afford Uber. I can't afford to do anything except plead my case. She brought him to us, and I'll just never forget when I looked at her and I said, I promise you, I'm a mom- and we'll take care of him. I'll take care of him like he's my own. And when we had to intubate him, you know, the, the looks on the faces and the reassurance that you have to suck up from really deep within you and just grit it out and be like, I will take care of you. I will not leave you. Um, it's reassuring the person that you see them. It's reassuring the person that no matter what, you're going to be a suffering presence with them and you will not abandon them. You look at that mother and you say, I will not leave your child, even though you're telling her she can't come in with you. And, you know, when a kid goes into cardiac arrest, it's just a different thing. You're managing a whole or respiratory arrest, but um, it's just a whole different host of factors. But even if you can't save the child or you can't save the patient or you can't help your friend or you, you know, whatever tragedy befalls some of your most beloved, you can still see them and you can still express to them that I'm here, I'm not going anywhere and you're fully seen and loved. So. I can't remember your original question, but that's what I've learned from all of this. And um, that will always stay with me. And I'm thankful for the people who did that for me.
0: And I'm thankful for everything that you're doing and have done for folks in your area and and for you to come on here and to speak eloquently and thoughtfully about a lot of this stuff. It's been an absolute honor to talk to you, Marty. Thank you so much for coming on the show.
1: Thanks for having me, Matt. really appreciate it.
0: Margie, thank you so much for coming on this episode. My goodness, this was so much fun. And in addition to that, I think as I ended the intro and you heard me say that as poorly as I was stating what this episode was going to be about, she would bring a level of eloquence that was on the other end of the spectrum. And you certainly heard it there. What an incredibly smart, intelligent, and thoughtful woman uh, she is. And it was an honor to speak with her on this episode. Also, I want to thank Prevnex for sponsoring this and every episode of the Rambling Runner podcast. If you're investing in supplements of any kind, go check them out. They're worth it. They're trusted. I trust them. Uh, I know my friend Lindsay Hine trusts them. They sponsor her podcast as well. Same thing as me. She tried them for a long time, liked them. And then, you know, accept them as a sponsor. And they're the real deal. Go to Previnax.com. Use code RUNNER15. Say 15% at checkout. Thank you so much for listening. And happy running. This has been a production of Rambling Runner Podcast. This podcast is produced by David Margetti of InPost Media. Thank you to MetaP for the music. His song, Righteous Path, featuring Rex Mayhem and Chip Fu, is produced by Symphonic Bang. Yeah Enterprising in my surroundings I'm finding the quietest states these days This representation of song brewing I'm amazed that the focus remains the vocal focal point of my change I'm trying to show this industry